everybody, welcome back, and thank you for your time. The, uh, I've told you the topic next week, of course, is the uh, Waterton Lakes National Park Visitor Centre. I think that's going to be interesting. It's a little bit con uh, contentious. The SACPA website is online, and uh, this, this session will be online for people that wish to view it and share it. And you can see podcasts on it, audio and video. Thanks to Shaw TV for that. The uh, topic we're dealing with today is geothermal. Our table has concluded that it is the easier, softer way, and we need to get Alberta working on exploring that alternative. If you could come to a microphone over here where Henning is and give us your name, keeping your comments nice and brief, and ask the uh, speaker anything you'd like, and then uh, sit down so she can answer it, and we'll reinvite our guest to the microphone. Katie, would you like to come back and answer some questions? Hi, Katie. My name is Henning Mundel, and thank you for a very fascinating presentation. And in the end, you were sort of appealing to the community to contact our MPs and so on. But I'm wondering, with the data that you have, the information that you have, have you or Kangia in general, what kind of overtures have you made to our provincial Minister of Energy, Minister of Environment, who happens to be our MLA here, and similarly for the federal um, ministries? Uh, thanks for your question. Um, I think mostly what Kenji is trying to do is um, work with policymakers. Um, it is a little hard to have discussions with them, so um, I haven't been much involved with the contacting of MLAs or um, policymakers, but um, I think one of the main things that they're trying to do is um, send, send out that powerful letter as much as possible. Um, to answer your question full, like more complete, I would have to um, contact Alison Thompson, who's the who's the owner of Kangia, um, and see what kind of work that she's doing. But uh, mostly, Kangia works to kind of promote geothermal within the public, um, and I think mostly um, they're just trying to do their best to contact MLAs, but it is difficult. Hi, I'm Judy Shepard. Um, from your talk, it's obvious that this um, technology requires a lot of water. So my question is, uh, could you elaborate on the impact of this process on the aquifers and on the water cycle in general, given that we're facing uh, more and more uh, shortage of fresh water in the future? Uh, thanks for your question, Judy. Um, yeah, it does involve a lot of water. Um, so in the process of geothermal, um, you do need water. Um, that water can either be pre-existing in the formation or it can be injected in. Uh, that water is always recycled in because um, it's not used as a resource, so it's not, um, it's not directly extracted, more just as a uh, short-term use for a transporter of the heat. Um, so in a hot aquifer, it is being extracted from that hot aquifer, um, but it is being rejected back into it. And um, 
one of the main components of a geothermal system is that you need to have a balance between the flow rate and the water. Um, so they do need to wait until that heat and the water is replenished before they cycle it back up. Um, so I'm not too certain about the specifics of water um, consumption, but in the case of a geothermal system, that water is being recycled. So it wouldn't be pulling that much up from the aquifer, I don't believe. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate uh, people who are just finishing university that take a social action kind of approach as you are. So thank you very much. My name is Mary Shillington. Before I ask my question, I just want to recognize two people who are here today, uh, Sandy and Alan Wilson, and it's the 37th wedding anniversary. So I wonder if you'll give them a hand. Stand up, please. They opted to come and have Sakpa lunch to, as their anniversary celebration. <laughs> um, I had two questions kind of related to Judy's in that you talked about in the binary cycle power plant, they would, you, they would in, insert, inject uh, some kind of binary fluid. And so my, question, one, my first question is, what kind of chemicals are in that? And then you talked also about fracking and how uh, they use that water and then put it back down while we know there's all kinds of chemicals in the fracking. And so both of those concerns are what happens to the water that's putting, that we're, the process puts back into the system, what kind of chemicals are we also putting back into the system? Okay. Um, so I'll just pull up this image again. Um, so this is the binary cycle plant, um, like I said, is used for lower temperature. Um, this binary fluid in a classic system is not actually injected into the, um, into the rock. It's a closed system. So uh, what we have going on here is um, this is a closed loop. Um, which doesn't contact the water that's being injected into the uh, formation rock. Um, it's just re it's just recycled throughout the um, secondary part of the system. Uh, once it extracts heat, it uh, creates electricity and goes back down. Um, so I don't think there'd be a problem with pollution or chemicals there. Um, in terms of fracking, um, I'll just bring up this. That um, the example that I talked about that where they're using fracking. Um, so your question was, what are they injecting into the um, rock for fracking? Um, I don't actually know much about the fracking process. Um, this is more just an example of a successful project for co-production. Um, Likely in Alberta, when if when we uh, if we were to start with geothermal, we wouldn't be doing fracking because we already have those reservoirs that have pre-existing permeability that allows for fluid flow. Um, so it wouldn't be necessary to frack. Um, mostly, fracking would be um, something I didn't discuss is an enhanced geothermal system. Um, this is a system that can be used anywhere in the world because basically you just drill deep enough that you're guaranteed to get heat. Um, in these systems, it's not guaranteed to have um, that natural permeability or the natural fractures. 
So you do need to frack at those deep levels in order to be guaranteed fluid flow and heat exchange. Um, so that's not likely something that we'd be doing here in Alberta, especially um, at the beginning if we're starting to produce geothermal. I hope that answered your question. I have one quick question and then another, another longer question, which I hope you're okay with me asking. But the first question is, and I'm Cheryl Bradley, by the way, is whether uh, salt water is used in geothermal as well besides fresh water. And uh, the other question is, is the Alberta government moving forward with uh, approval processes for geothermal projects? Has there been any discussion about how applications would be received? Would they go to the Alberta Utilities Commission or the energy regulator? and uh, how they would be reviewed. Has there been any indication that those sorts of things are being developed? So um, to answer your first question, um, I don't think they would be injecting salt water, uh, using that as a means, um, just because salt water come, using salt water comes with a lot of issues, like eroded well casings. Um, in a lot of cases, um, I think like in the United States, when they are developing geothermal, um, one of the issues is that they're bringing up salt water and um, the technology that they're trying to advance is how to deal with that salt water that's being pulled up and um, causing issues for their system. So I don't think you would intentionally be using salt water as um, the fluid. And um, to answer your second question, um, it is hard to say if there has been any movement. Um, currently, right now, I think what Kenji's biggest frustration is there hasn't been any movement. So I think to answer your question, it's probably pretty safe to say um, that there isn't really a lot of um, improvement going on with uh, addressing the issue of lack of a regulatory framework for the development of geothermal. Um, I'm not sure who would be in charge of that, whether it be the Alberta Energy Regulator. Um, but I could, um, afterwards, if you give me your email, I could contact some people at Kangia to um, answer your question more in depth. My name is Cosmos Vucinas. I'd like to compliment you, Katie, for taking an initiative and a good one. Uh, I like to, if I may, I have an answer and actually and a question, if I may. The answer is to a previous question that what was the medium that circulates into your system that converts the heat? It's like any other refrigerant, like a refrigerator, very similar. My question is, these wells have been abandoned because they have stopped being commercially viable to get out gas but that does not mean they don't have gas enough still in there. And as you know, methane is 25 times more potent to CO2 in terms of earth warming. So a lot of it will come out, and I was sort of taken aback a little bit with your statement, if we find some gas, we'll report it. You will find probably a lot of gas, and reporting it might not be enough. So before you connect, contact the politicians, for policies, you should be making a policy taking care of the technical little problem that could be very big. Hello. Oh, 
yeah, um, I appreciate concern. Um, that's definitely um, a very understandable concern. Um, that, um, yeah, so that is a possibility, and that's why, um, like I said, not all of these abandoned wells are viable to be converted into, uh, to have a geothermal component on there. Um, so um, currently, Kenjia is working on finding uh, suspended or abandoned wells that would be viable for that, um, for converting. So it does have to have those components of um, the correct reservoir heat flow as well if they are pulling up methane. Um, that's why it's kind of hard to work with abandoned wells, um, especially if you're an, an outside um, geothermal company if you're gonna purchase an abandoned or suspended well from an oil and gas company, um, it is kind of hard to know all the parameters of that well. Um, you don't know all the issues with it. So um, that's why kind of the initial steps that could be taken for oil and gas companies just to convert their own wells. So they know their own issues with that well and if they have uh, problems with methane, then it probably wouldn't be a viable well to be converted. My name is Elspeth Nickel, and I'd like to look at your levelized cost of energy slide, if, if you could bring that one up. And I'm interested because you show well over on the right that geothermal is the star with the lowest levelized cost of energy, I think. And over on the left, I think you've got solar power and wind power. Uh, so my question is, is there are some parameters that are involved in this. Um, this is over the lifetime of the geothermal plant, facility, whatever. How um, sensitive is that? If you, you know, if you have corrosion issues with salt water, if you have methane gas, suddenly, okay, we have to take care of that. These things would, I think, cause some problems in that levelized cost of energy. Can you speak to that and just how much data is behind this? Uh, um, thousands of, of levelized, uh, thousands of geothermal plants or only a few or what, what's that sort of situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it does take into a few parameters. Um, this is from the U.S. Energy Administration information. Um, so I, I do believe that um, these are all facilities within the U.S. Um, so U.S. does have um, high numbers of geothermal plants. So these green bars here, um, they are the range, so it can be kind of taken as their uncertainty. Um, I believe there are fewer wind or solar um, compared to natural gas and geothermal. Are there more geothermal than solar? Um, there might not be, but um, just given the range, I think it's... Um, I think you could project that um, because that green bar of uncertainty there is smaller, that it's um, more of the power plants are closer within the range of that levelized cost between each plants. Whereas um, like solar and wind, it's really dependent on where it's situated, um, the climate, and um, perhaps they have more issues with producing energy, whereas, um, Geothermal, um, essentially, well, I guess solar and wind, it's more of a, a stable upfront cost. And then the power um, and the netback that you're getting back does vary based on the area. Whereas geothermal, 
essentially the more kilowatts that you're beginning from the plant, the higher upfront cost it is for building. So I think that's why um, it's more correlated for the construction cost equals the net back, um, and then maintenance cost probably doesn't vary as much to appear on the graph as such a variance there. One last quick question. How long has geothermal been, uh, been sort of implemented in the U.S.? Is it since the 1970s? When, when did it first start? Um, I'm not sure about the U.S. Um, I know overseas, like in Italy, it's been around for hundreds of years, just um, for more direct heat use. But for power plant electricity generation in the United States, um, I would say it is fairly recent compared to other renewable energies. But um, I couldn't tell you exactly how long. Uh, miss, uh, congratulations, Miss Speaker. Uh, if there was a award to be given for anything, I think uh, in terms of innovation, you would your push for explaining these fantastic ideas would win should win a w award. Referring back to that now, I uh, the same word as innovation, as far as without sounding critical of our new government. Uh, I think the only innovation that they've financed so far is, uh, is many, many little beer producing <laughs> companies. Uh, and, and I don't, <laughs> but unfortunately, I think that uh, in today's paper, the Premier of, S of Saskatchewan, Mr. Wall, has finally roared at our federal government's carbon tax as well because uh, that's all we've got today is a carbon tax to solve all our problems and the terrible, terrible, terrible coal mine, coal, okay? But at any rate, uh, can you tell us, uh, have you researched what fracking does to the existing sealed and unsealed plants because the methane production out of these empty wells that have been cracked by fracking and the ones uncapped are, are so tremendous w with methane gas. Mm -hmm. Have you researched that? Um, thank you for your comments. Um, no, I haven't done a lot of research on the methane emissions of fracking. Sorry, I wish I could answer that for you. Uh, my name is Terry Shillington. Katie, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, I think it's uh, very informative and thoughtful. Um, behind the questions that you're getting, I think, is a, is a bit of uh, cynicism. The further we go down the road of green energies, the more we realize there is no truly clean energy. There are upsides and downsides uh, to almost every energy source. And the question is, which is cleanest or less dirty or most dam least damaging and so on. So I'd feel better about your presentation if you were able to name some of the areas of concern. Uh, uh, many of us immediately flagged the, the, the reality of more fracking. Uh, and I, I hear you I kind of not, that's not an uh, informed specialty of yours, but 
but we have a great unease around here about fracking. Um, so that's just a comment that uh, I gather the upfront cost is one of the deterring factors. I note that from your, your global map that the, the power plants are along the hotspots, which suggests to me that that's the easiest to make economically viable and the, cooler, the less more hot the water, the more difficult. Uh, a specific, so that's just a comment. The, my specific question is around how far down below the conventional oil well would you have to drill to encounter water warm enough to work with? Um, uh, there'd be a variation, but what would be generally the additional depth you'd have to dig? Um, in a conventional reservoir, um, if you already have the well drilled, I think you would only have to drill about 10 to 20 meters, depending on the well. Um, yeah, because the, that oil and gas um, reservoir tends to sit pretty much directly above it. Um, and as well, if you're co-producing, um, like I mentioned about the oil and gas reservoir being depleted, that water is sometimes naturally being drawn up. Um, so there are a number of ways that you could convert an inactive well um, to take advantage of that hot water, really depending on the site. Um, sometimes if you do know where the aquifer is sitting, you could just drill a few meters deeper to hit that aquifer. Um, some, some inactive wells naturally fill up with warm water over time. Um, so to answer your question, um, generally you probably wouldn't have to dig that deep. Lawrence Hoy. <clears throat> I believe that uh, geothermal has the same problems that wind does when you're talking about power generation because these oil wells are scattered all over the province of Alberta. And if you're going to generate power there, you're going to have to build transmission lines, get all sorts of access rights to build the transmission lines, and you're not going to be generating that much power. Now, it's a different story where you go to the hot spots, but nevertheless, uh, here in Alberta, I think the best that you will be able to hope for would be, uh, say, some greenhouses or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a dispersed generation system, and I just don't buy it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Those are all really viable concerns. Um, you are right that it is it is difficult, could be costly to build those transmission lines. Um, and that's that's kind of the um, an advantage that we have with having so many abandoned wells is even if we just take a fraction of those wells, um, it would be really viable for the economy and for producing. Um, and one of the difficulties that we do face with addressing geothermal is that it does have to be close to consumers to um, get that electricity connected to the grid or provide direct heating. Um, so that is that is a concern. Um, that's why uh, Borealis and Deep and Eposh are uh, starting their projects with those small towns like Hinton and Vailmont that have the advantage of being in those hot areas um, and being close to consumers. So. In the future, if we do start to develop geothermal as um, a baseload power source for Albertans and Canadians, um, we would need to address those issues. For now, I think it's great that we're starting with those small towns um, to see how it works. And then 
uh, once we kind of understand the payback, the net back that we're going to get, um, and understand how the system works and if it's worth that um, that initial building cost, um, we could see if it's worth building those transmission lines and connecting bigger areas to a further um, geothermal power plant. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Uh, regarding the all these uh, drill sites that has been abandoned in Alberta, well over 100,000, uh, it seems to me that the cost to reclaim all those is falls uh, largely on the taxpayer, which is crazy, but that's the way it is. Uh, so the cost is probably in the neighborhood of anywhere from a quarter of a million to half a million dollars to reclaim all these. So that money could really be invested by the uh, taxpayers uh, into making geothermal possible. That would go a long ways towards uh, making it feasible to do it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a really good comment. Um, abandoning or reclaiming a well, um, your numbers were pretty spot on, about 20000 and up to a million dollars, depending on the well. Um, and basically what's happening right now with the drop in oil price is that um, the liability management ratio, um, which is the net back over the liability of a well, um, the Alberta Energy Regulator required that to be above one for a well to uh, be considered viable and um, if it did have a liability management ratio or an LMR of above one, then it would be covered by um, what they have is called an orphan fund. So companies pay, um, it's essentially like insurance. So companies pay to contribute to this orphan fund and if they do need to abandon that well, um, then the orphan fund will cover that. Um, the problem with the increasing number of abandoned wells and the drop in oil price is that um, Alberta Energy Regulator can not afford to um, pay out all of these abandoned wells. Um, and if a company is covered by that orphan fund um, and they need to abandon the well, the orphan fund pays for that. Let's say the orphan fund dries out because there's so many orphan wells, then yes, the liability does fall on the taxpayers. Um, and the problem now is that the Alberta, G Alberta Energy Regulator has increased that LMR ratio to two. Um, to be considered for that orphan fund. Otherwise, companies have to pay a really large fee to be covered for that. And so what's happening is a lot of junior companies can't pay for that, and so they become bankrupt if they need to abandon a well. Um, so that's kind of one of the reasons as well why I brought up um, repurposing an inactive well, because if a company can no longer afford to uh, drill from that well, if they add a geothermal component, if it is viable, they could start producing some money from that. Um, therefore obviating their need to um, abandon their well, potentially, um, make some money until oil prices come up, and then they could start using it for to co-produce. Um, that is a really optimistic view, but um, in reality, there's so many orphan wells that we could really do this to even a fraction of those wells, and it would be a fairly large number, and um, then that liability wouldn't fall to the taxpayers. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you so much. Um, 
You know, this is a pretty tough crowd, so kudos to you for coming and presenting to us. Thank you very much. The, it, it's my understanding that you are to educate us. Is, are you sort of public relations with your group? Um, no, I'm, I'm an ambassador, so um, I, that's one of my roles is to try to inform people, yeah. Okay. Um, perhaps you could bring back to your group that the, that the economic, um, you know, the economic um, point of your presentation certainly is interesting as well as giving us more information about where the, where the hot spots are. We know that Alberta is not a hot spot. But the main concern here is we do not want the aquifers, the water aquifers, to be polluted. And the whole concept of digging deeper down into these um, orphan wells through to the aquifers, I mean, that's one of our, our major concerns is that, that the oil and the aquifers do not mix and the fracking fluids in wells that have been flacked doesn't get into the aquifers and, and pollute them. So that's the big question that we have about your system. If you had a self-contained system that could be put into the wells to capture heat, and maybe uh, along with that, a system to capture the methane, to use that for burning, for creating uh, energy or whatever you're going to do with it, you know, those two, something to do with those two systems, a self-contained system is really important for uh, not getting, not allowing any of the pollutants from the inactive wells to go into the aquifers. If your company could deal with the, those issues and let us know how they intend to deal with that so that we are not polluting pure water aquifers, uh, that would be a very strong argument in favor of geothermal, whereas right now we're left with questions wondering how will you protect the aquifers? Thank you. Um, thank you for your question. Um, yeah, absolutely, there is a concern with um, polluting the aquifers. Um, what I've presented today is more of an idea of the potential that we have in Alberta. Um, I would like to think that um, these wouldn't be deployed until more research is done. Um, just because we don't have it here in Canada, um, it's hard to it's hard to address that issue yet um, because I'm not sure about how uh, the introduction of a geothermal system would affect um, an aquifer and if we could do it without polluting it. Um, I think it would be, um, I think that having the United States so close to us and them uh, using geothermal in a really similar way that Alberta has the potential um, before drilling or using geothermal, um, a lot of companies are really looking into the projects they have in the United States and looking at their, um, their methods and the results and how their um, development has impacted the environment and especially the aquifers. Um, so that is an issue that needs to be addressed. I agree with you. Um, but um, this is more of an option that we have here in Alberta. And um, it's not to say that companies would go in and start drilling without um, understanding the consequences. So um, thank you for addressing that issue. Um, 
I think it is really important for companies to look into before they start developing. Thank you, Katie. Thank you very much for coming all the way here to educate us on this topic. Uh, it is the toughest crowd in Alberta, I can assure you of that. So everything from here is easy. And uh, please come back and, and update us in a year as to what progress we've made. And if anybody can help her with our local environment minister, please uh, let your voice be heard. Thank you for coming. Thank you.